we're looking at a giveaway copies of this book. That uh, uh, great book. So the first person to tell me the uh, score of the Super Bowl gets a free book. You were close. You were close. What'd you say? You got it. There you go. Let's give uh, Denise a, a round of applause. Kara, keep trying. You got, you got another chance. You got another chance. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, considering we're studying open Bibles, uh, turn with me to uh, first passage we'll look at is 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. We'll get there in a moment. It'll be a little bit, but uh, have your... Uh, Bibles on, turned on, powered up, opened up, and hearts open. Um, we've been in this series, The Approach, Heart Postures for Approaching the Bible. And so you see at the top of your notes, a little review. We said start with the heart. It always starts with the heart. And we looked at the approach. That means approach your Bible humbly, uh, desperately, and prayerfully. Then be a Berean. Approach your Bible studiously and obediently. Have that rota response where you have a, a, a learner's uh, posture with a teachable heart. Quick to hear, quick to obey from the heart. And then expect great joy together. Expect great joy together. And last week we looked at approach your Bible expectantly. It is a powerful change agent. Expect to be changed joyfully because what God is changing you into is for your good and His glory. And then do it mutually. Do it together. So if you're not a part of a grow group, you can uh, see me. I'll get you hooked up with one of our groups that's meeting tonight, and you can be involved in that. I am glad that you're here as a class. This is mutually learning and approaching the Bible. Today, though... We're looking at probably the most important one, if not the most important one, behold the triune God. That's how I'm summarizing this. And we're going to look at three approaches. And it's this, approach your Bible theologically, Christologically, and spiritually. And uh, if you're uh, a guest with us or this is your first time, you're like, oh my gosh, why did I come? These big words. First of all, these are great words. And I'm going to explain them to you. And, but I'm going to make it real simple how you approach your Bible in these ways. But we approach to behold the triune God. Now, why do I say that? It's because, and here's your notes, the one true God reveals himself as three in one. The one true God reveals himself as three in one. God has revealed himself as a trinity. One God in three persons. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is so critical, there would be no Christianity without it. Okay? There would be no Christianity without it. Listen, the Trinity is what makes Christianity unique. The Trinity is not something that you would ever arrive at by human reasoning, it's something that you have to receive by divine revelation. So let me say that again. You, will, you would never come up with the Trinity by human reasoning. It's something that you have to receive by divine revelation. And God has revealed himself in this way. Now, Kevin DeYoung uh, has written a short article 
for the Gospel Coalition entitled The Doctrine of the Trinity, No Christianity Without It. And here's what he said. If any doctrine makes Christianity Christian, then surely it's the doctrine of the Trinity. The three great ecumenical creeds, the Apostles' Creed, which was the earliest one, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed are all structured around our three-in-one God. In other words, when they seek to explain Christianity in a summarized way, they do it through God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. DeYoung goes on and says, Augustine once commented, uh, Augustine, early church father, once commented about the Trinity that in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or discovery of truth more profitable. Now, what's he mean by that? Simply this, when you come to the Trinity, it's easy to get it wrong, get it wrong it's hard to get it right, but it's worth the effort. Are you with me? It's easy to get it wrong. It's hard to get it right, but it's worth the effort. I think I just improved upon Augustine. Let us move on. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? We can only understand the Trinity as God reveals it to us in the Bible. And so, you know, I get talking about the Trinity, I get excited, and you got an ancient church diagram there. That's in our discipleship material as well. There's seven summary statements. I'm not going to read those for you. You have them there. But that's the essence of the Trinity. That's just kind of a doctrinal introduction to the topic. The doctrine of the Trinity is best understood as it's revealed in Scripture by comparing Scripture with Scripture. And so what I want to do is just give you a couple verses to show you that when you read your Bible, the Trinity, first of all, you'll never find the word Trinity in the Bible. Okay, it's not a biblical word. It's a word that Christians have used to summarize a biblical doctrine. But the Trinity is all over the Bible especially the New Testament. And so what I want you to learn from this lesson is I want to liberate you from the generic God mentality. What do I mean by that? Listen, we don't just have this God, G-O-D. Now, that is in the Bible. He is called God, Elohim, but he is called so much more. And he is so much more than a generic God. Even in my notes and, 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 and preaching and teaching, I've tried to, to get away. There's a place for that. More evangelistic, more, you know, people that aren't familiar with the Bible. But like down here where we're trying to get a little deeper, go a little farther in our biblical understanding, I want to use more the terminology of the Bible so that you understand we don't have this flattened out, a generic God where anybody can fulfill uh, the content of what he is. We have a God who's very specific. And so you find the Trinity, and if you're not looking for it, you won't see it. For instance, at the baptism of Jesus, the Father speaks from heaven, the Son is being baptized by John, and the Spirit arrives in the form of a dove. So at one moment, right there, you have Father, Son, and Spirit all active. So uh, we don't believe in modalism where the father shows up and then he takes his father mask off and puts on his son mask and then he takes his son mask off and puts on his spirit mask and it's just one God pretending to be three, three people. They were all there at once. 
Matthew 28, you say, well, how do you know that? Maybe there, maybe there are three gods, you know, that work together. Well, Matthew 28, Jesus sums up the Christian life as identification with and submission to the Trinity in the Great Commission because he says this, baptize people in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Well, there's one name, singular, and yet three persons are mentioned. So it's one God in three persons. Paul sums up our salvation in, as, as being uh, a gift from the Trinity. In Ephesians uh, 1, he says this, The Father predestines our salvation, the Son purchases our salvation, and the Spirit protects our salvation. All of that in Ephesians 1 is in one sentence, and all of it is Trinitarian. So it's all over the Bible. But look at 1 Peter. You're there in 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter 1 2. Just Peter starting a letter as he writes the letter. Notice what he says. You're into the second verse of 1 Peter 1, and he's already saying this that you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Father, Spirit, Son. It's all over the Bible, especially the New Testament. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen. 2 Corinthians thirteen. 14. Here's Paul ending a letter. So he's ending the letter to the second Corinthians. And in verse 14 of chapter 13, here's how he ends. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So there it is. There's the Trinity. It's all over there. And I just want you to approach your Bible to behold your triune God. So we're going to help you do that. Uh, so let's, let's learn three heart postures that will help you to taste and treasure the glorious grace of our triune God. Three heart postures to taste and treasure the glorious grace of our triune God. So first approach, number one. Approach your Bible theologically. Read your Bible in a God-centered way. Approach your Bible theologically. I didn't even make you write theologically out in your blank. You're like, I'm not sure I know what theologically means. Okay, I just explained it to you. Read in a God-centered way. Okay? Now, I broke it down even for you. Theology is not a word to be scared of. Except I'm now going to scare you. It's comprised of two Greek words, theos for God and logos for word. So all theology is, is a word about God. Uh, it's also un that theology and that combination of words is understood to be the study of God. And so that just means this. Biblical theology is the study of God as revealed in the Bible. The study of God as revealed in the Bible. So let me even ease your anxiety more. Uh, uh, let me ease you even more, not increase it, ease it. Everyone is a theologian. 
everyone is a theologian. Because when I say theology, and I talk theologians, you're like, yeah, you know, you've been to Bible college, you've been to grad school, I, yeah, yeah, you're a pastor, you're... No, 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 no. You don't have to have a library like mine. You don't have to have an education like mine. Everyone is a theologian. The question is whether you're a bad one or a good one. So why do I say everyone is a theologian? Well, if theology is a word about God, everyone has an opinion about God. I mean, this is a great question to start conversation this week at work. Do you have an opinion about God? I'd like to hear it. You know, what's your opinion about God? What's your thoughts about God? You're basically saying, as a theologian, what do you think about God? The question is, are your opinions biblical? That's the question, okay? The question is, are you a good theologian? Are you a biblical theologian? And here's the deal. You say, well, Chris, how can I be a good theologian? How can my opinions and my words and my study and my thoughts about God be good? Here's how you can become an excellent theologian. Simply approach your Bible with all of these heart approaches that we've been studying. I promise you, I say to you, on the authority of God's Word, if you would just take... How many have we studied so far? What do we got there? How many is, I got them numbered. How many? Huh? Eight. Okay, just take the eight heart approaches that we've studied so far. And if you would apply them in your approach to the Bible, I promise you, you would be more theologically correct, more cl closer to God than many so-called published academic theologians. I promise you. Okay? And that does, I mean, there's a lot of godly th academics. There are a lot of godly theologians, but there's a lot of ungodly ones. And here's the bottom line. God wants you to study him. God wants you to know him. And God wants you to be God-centered in the way you approach your Bible. You see, the Bible can be summarized in one word. Are you ready? Here it is. The Bible summarized in one word. God. God. That's how you summarize the Bible. You say, if you're going to summarize the Bible in one word, God. Why Did I come up with that? No. The Bible came up with that. The Bible is a God-centered revelation. Now, how do we know the Bible is God-centered? See how the Bible begins and ends. So the Bible begins and ends with one thing, God. Okay, somebody read Genesis 1-1. Somebody got Genesis 1-1 real quick. Do what? Stop right there. Say again. No, say. In the beginning. Stop. In the beginning. What? God, God, aren't you glad you volunteered today? Yes, God, God, in the beginning, God. Now, think of, stop and think about that. God is about to reveal the beginning of his story, which will be eventually 66 books. He's starting with the history of all things. And when he begins, there is one subject, one actor, one initiator, one original first cause, and it's God. That's how the Bible begins. How does it end? Well, in Revelation 22, it ends with the throne of God at the center of the new creation. 
It begins and ends with God. But one of my favorite verses, and it's often overlooked, is 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. And right there, kind of like in the middle of the New Testament, God tells us how all of eternity is going to play out. And here's what he says. Then comes the end. When Christ hands over the kingdom to God, the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule, all authority and power. And then drops down and he says this. When all things are subjected to him, that is Christ, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to Christ. Why does he do that? So that God may be all in all. I'm telling you, the Bible is a God-centered revelation. Life is a God-centered revelation. It's all about Him. So how should the God-centered Bible impact our approach? This is not a, so much of a doctrinal series as a practical series and application of doctrine. So let me give it to you real basic. The Bible is first and foremost about God and not you. So turn to your neighbor and say, I hate to break it to you. Turn to your neighbor, I hate to break it to you. The Bible is not about you. And then say back to them, well, I've got news for you. It's not about you either. Amen? The Bible is first and foremost about God. Listen, the Bible is not a yearbook or a self-help book, okay? Now, you know, I don't even know, do yearbooks still, I mean, I, you know, they're still, exa- okay. So we've got Dane's cousin, or should I say Cameron, uh, has his cousin here, Dane. How does it work? I don't know how it works, but anyway, we love Cameron. We're glad he's here. So he's in education, so he knows. So there are still year- yearbooks, right? Okay, so I got to tell you, anytime yearbooks come up, ninth grade, I was a little bit artistic, so I was asked to do the cover of our yearbook. And I, I don't know where it's at. Gwen, only Gwen knows and where it's at. So I, I wish I could bring it. So I, we were, it was Antioch Junior High at those days. And so we were the Antioch uh, Spartans, right? And so I designed kind of a Superman-looking Spartan on the front. He had his shield. He had his sword. And it was a red book. And this was done in white ink. And he's there, and he's got a shield, and it says Antioch Spartans right there on his shield. And so the yearbooks go out. You know, I'm really pumped about this. Everybody's getting their yearbooks. Well, I can't wait. And pretty soon I've got dozens of people running up to me, pointing to the yearbook. And as only I do with my spelling, it said Antioch Spratons. (laughs) Antioch Spratons. But I had a great defense. I'm like, hey, I turn not the yearbook people i'm just the illustrator where's the editing department so i totally threw the editing so forever there are the antioch Spratons. okay now what's the deal about yearbook though now why is that significant because here's about here's the deal about yearbooks yearbooks are all about who yeah you me right yeah it's all about me so when you get your yearbook what's the first thing you do when you get a yearbook you you, you what 
Yeah, you look for your picture, and you go to the back, and you don't just look for your your school your 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 year picture. You look for all the places you are also pictured, right? I mean, first and foremost. And basically, once you've done that, you're done. And, and the next thing is, you want people to write things in your yearbook about who? Yeah, yeah, me, me. No, no, you guys aren't for me. You're for you. For you. Okay, yeah, that's exactly what we do. And so too often, here, here, too often we go to the Bible to find where it talks about me. And we go to find where the Bible makes much of me. And because the Bible's about God and not me, it soon becomes boring and I quit reading it. I'm like, I don't get it. That's because we're approaching it to see the wrong person, okay? Or we approach it like a self-help book. We go to the Bible to help solve my problems. We go to see what it says about meeting my needs. And again, we come up dry. We come up saying, I don't get this. And a lot of it is because we're not approaching it to see him, okay? And so we don't get it. And because we don't get it, we don't read it, okay? So there's the idea. Now, at this point, you might be asking the question that Jen Wilkin raises in her book, Women of the Word, does this mean that the Bible has nothing to say to us about who we are? And here's how Jen answers that. No, not at all. We just go about trying to answer that question in a backwards way. The Bible does tell us who we are and what we should do. But it does so through the lens of who God is. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of self always go hand in hand. To find, about, find out what's most significant about you, you've got to find out who God is. That's the idea there. The Bible is God-centered and people-focused. So that's there in your notes. The Bible is God-centered but and... And it's people focus. The Bible does tell us who we are and what we should do, but it does so through the lens of who God is. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of self always go hand in hand. So here's the application. How do I approach my Bible theologically in a God-centered way? Let me give you two things to think of. First of all, look for him before you think about you. Look for him before you think about you. So we've talked about, and we're so glad to have uh, Knox, the Knox man, is his first time in the new life class. Is that a, a wondrous thing? Yes, that's a wondrous thing. He was at the Super Bowl, and every time I cheered, I made him cry because he was, he was trying to sleep through the Super Bowl, which was a wrong discipleship on the parents' part anyway because <laughs> he should have been watching the game with us. And so uh, there was tension there. So we're glad that he's back with us. Now, here's the deal. Look for him before you think about you. We've talked about Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things in your law. Let me just shorten that. Open my eyes that I may say, see you, O God. Open my eyes that I may see you. So that's the first thing. Number two, look to see how his kingdom plan for all creation and redemption is progressing. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we already kind of hit this on um, 
uh, when we looked at the Bible studiously. So I've hit this before, and we had a series where we traced the refuge for the nations. We've hit this several times, but it doesn't hurt to look at it again. So here's what we look to see. Look to see for his kingdom plan, which is what? God's presence ruling through God's people over God's place. God's presence ruling through or with God's people over God's place. So look for these three, ask these three questions. What do I see about God in relation to his glory? What do I see about God in relation to his glory? I have that further broken down for you. Number two, what do I see about God in relation to his people? So, you know, we're not just saying, oh, I can only, if it's not about God, I just dismiss that verse. No, but see everything in relation to God. And then number three, what do I see about God in relation to his creation? Again, Jen Wilkins says, we have often gotten backwards the transformation process. Any study of the Bible that seeks to establish our identity without first proclaiming God's identity will render partial and limited help. We must turn around our, our habit of asking, who am I? And we must first ask, what does this passage teach me about God before we ask it to teach us anything about ourselves? We must acknowledge that the Bible is a book about God. So approach your Bible theologically. Look for God the Father, who is our creator. But he's also our redeemer. And that means that he sent his son to rescue us. So number two, approach your Bible Christologically. You're like, there's another one of those big words. It's okay. Read in a Christ-exalting way. Read in a Christ-exalting way. Now, again, Christology, big word, impress your friends. You now know what it means. It comes from two Greek words, Christos, which is Christ, Lagos, which is word. Christology is simply a word about Christ. It's the study of Christ. And biblical Christology is the study of Christ as revealed in the Bible. So here's the thing. If Christology is words about Christ, where do you find the words about Christ in the Bible? Now, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Where do you find the words of Christ? First thing would be definitely New Testament, not Old Testament, right? We would think New Testament. And then where in the New Testament would you think to go to find the words of Christ? Who said it? The Gospels. And then if you're really fundamental, where in the Gospels would you go to see the words of Christ? The red letters. Yes, the red letters of Christ. You know, because that's where Christ is being quoted. And so, you know, and some people think that's kind of like the authority, you know, the most authoritative thing in the Bible is the red letters. But to be truly honest, if we were to record the words of Christ in red, your whole Bible would be in red ink. That's what Jesus tells us. Jesus tells us that the entire Bible is about him and his work 
of salvation. So let me give you three facts about why three facts to prove that the whole Bible is really about him and his work of salvation. Fact number one, all scripture points forward to the person and work of Christ. All scripture points forward to the person and work of Christ. And you don't have to take my word on it. You can take Jesus' own word on it. In Luke chapter 24, you have this great story. We can't get into the whole story. But here's what he says. He's walking with two of his disciples on the way to Emmaus. And they're all confused because they thought Jesus was the Messiah, and yet he was crucified. And then he was supposed to resurrect, but they hadn't seen him. And so they are despondent. They are depressed. They are melancholy. And as Jesus comes up and walks with them, they don't recognize him. And they tell him all about their depressing things, about how they were disappointed in thinking Jesus was the Messiah. And here in verse 25, so if you look in Luke 24, look at verse 25. Luke 24, verse 25. Here's what Jesus says to them. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. First of all, our lesson, start with the heart, was just validated right there. Because where does he locate the problem? In their heart. Oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Meaning to go back up into heaven, not run around on the earth for, uh, in a glorified body. That's not the plan just yet. Then look at verse 27. Then beginning with Moses... Well, Moses refers to the first five books especially. And the first book is what? Genesis. So he's starting with Genesis, and then he's moving through all the prophets. He explained to them the things concerning himself in all of Scripture. So what he's saying is, you can, go, you can start with Genesis, and you can work through the whole Old Testament, and you will find things about my, my death, my life, my death, my uh, uh, crucifixion, and my resurrection, and my exaltation. And that shouldn't surprise anyone in this class who was with the suffering, suffering servant uh, Isaiah study we just did, because we saw all those things just in Isaiah. But I want to say one thing very quickly, without getting too deep in the weeds. He explained them the things concerning him in all of Scripture. Some people get overzealous, I believe, and this is my opinion. They get overzealous about this passage and try to like present it like you should find Jesus in every verse of Scripture. Like, you know, you should clearly see Christ every verse of Scripture. But notice, he says, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of Scripture. So, you know... It's okay, you know, I mean, like, for instance, Esther doesn't even mention God at all, okay? And so all of that points, Esther has something to say about the coming Messiah. That's, That's true. But it's not like you have to impose Jesus back onto the Old Testament. We'll talk more about that. Scripture points forward to him. 
That's sometimes called Christotelic. Don't worry about that word. Number two, the person in the work of Christ fulfills all of Scripture. Fact number two, the person and work of Christ fulfills all of Scripture. And again, we have Jesus' own words on this. Matthew 5, 17 through 18. I believe I put that in your notes. Jesus said, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, and then there's our word, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest stroke, letter, or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the idea there is what he's saying. He's like, in English, it'd be like not even the dot on the I and not even the little horizontal line on a T, not even that smallest part of the Old Testament will go unfulfilled. I fulfill it all. And that fancy word for that is sometimes called Christocentric. And so sometimes people get into an argument over Christotelic and Christocentric, and they say, oh, you know, what? it's both. The whole Old Testament is pointing forward, and when it comes to Christ, Christ is fulfilling all of it. So don't, you know, some of you don't care, and that's good probably, but, you know, don't get all worried about all those things. They're, they're basically looking at the same thing from a different focus. Let me give you one more. Third fact. The person and work of Christ brings all Scripture into focus. The person and work of Christ brings all Scripture into focus. Or you could say living color. You know, I grew up in a day, I watched the first Super Bowl with my dad on a black and white TV. Okay? And so I know the difference and have lived with the difference between black and white. And you know, in our kids, it'd be like the difference between maybe HD and, you know, whatever. What, what do you plaster on your face? What's that called? What? Yeah, virtual reality. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So it's like that difference. So here's the deal. In the Old Testament, it's often said, Christ is concealed. And in the New Testament, Christ is revealed. And, you know, that's, that's pretty accurate. That's pretty, you can say it that way. You know, he's there, but he's concealed. We don't see him. I think probably a better way to say it is Christ is there in the Old Testament, but it's more black and white and fuzzy. But in the New Testament, we see him in full color and it's high definition. There's no mistaking who Christ is. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? So think in these three ways. You say, how do I see Christ in my Old Testament? Think in these three ways. Everything you read in the Old Testament is pointing forward to him. So think about that. Everything in the, in the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled by him. Now, the question is, how is it going to be fulfilled? And that's where people debate. Too often people present, okay, it's fulfilled in Christ, as if in the gospel Christ fulfilled all the promises of the Old Testament. Nay, nay, my friends. There is much in the Old Testament that has not yet been fulfilled by Christ. It waits future fulfillment. Okay, so don't, the Bible doesn't stop with the Gospels. That's what I try to say. Ah, there we find Christ. He fulfills all things. Now the second coming. No, he's fulfilling this in a progressive way. There's the church that comes into the picture. There's his kingdom that is coming. And there is a future for Israel that is coming because he's going to fulfill all the promises 
of the Old Testament. And the way to look at that, Hebrews is a great book to explain how Christ brings into focus what the temple means. He brings into focus what the tabernacle means. And that's all I can say on that. All right, those are three facts. Now, let's jump to how do I do this? Here's the practical. And let me just get real simple. Let the scriptures themselves lead you to Christ. Let the scriptures themselves lead you to Christ. Jason Allen, the president of Midwestern, has written a book, Letters to My Students, and he said this about preaching. In short, be expositional first and Christological second. And what he means by that is, let the passage speak to you first, then see how it relates to Christ. And I cannot emphasize that enough. We don't read Christ back into the Old Testament. We read the Old Testament, let it point forward to, see how Christ then fulfills it, and how does Christ bring greater focus. But first, we've got to understand the passage in its own context. So, for example, going through the four servant songs in our last series. I didn't didn't try to make all those points. Jesus is doing all this. No, let's first look at the suffering servant. And let's just see what Isaiah uh, received and what Isaiah is teaching us. Then, as you look at it in context, being Christians, we're like, whoa, that's Jesus, right? That's all pointing forward to Jesus. Wow, Jesus really fulfilled those servant songs. Whoa, knowing Jesus brings those servant songs into focus. You see what I'm trying to get at? And so, okay. So how do we do this? In the Old Testament, here's how you find, uh, here's how to behold Christ in the Old Testament. And again, this is, I'm I'm keeping this at the cook, I'm putting the cookies on maybe not the bottom shelf, maybe the next up shelf. Okay, this is just, this is simple. Okay, there's more that can be said. First of all, ask yourself when you're reading the Old Testament, Is Christ being exalted in a promise? Does this promise the coming Messiah? For instance, Genesis 3.15. Your seed, the woman's seed, and the serpent's seed will have a battle. He will be a heel biter. The woman's seed will be a head crusher. There's a promise that will be fulfilled by Christ. Is he being exalted in a picture? So when you're looking at the Passover lamb in Exodus, is this a picture of the cross? Well, yes, it is. The tabernacle, is that a picture of dwelling with Christ? Yes, it is. Is Christ being exalted in a pattern? For instance, Israel in slavery, being liberated, then given the scriptures, the the law, and then entering into the promised land. That's a pattern of of the Christian life. That's a pattern of what Christ himself went through. Is he being exalted in a prediction? For instance, the servant servant songs are all predictions in which Christ is uh, exalted. Is he being exalted in a pre-incarnate appearance? For instance, Jesus is in the, uh, not Jesus, Christ, the Son of God, is in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord that appears. Uh, is the pre-incarnate Christ. It's not Jesus because Jesus hasn't been born. 
but it's the Son of God. He's there in the Old Testament. Is this a passage that's quoted or implied in the New Testament? One of the great ways to see how Christ applies to the Old Testament is to go to the New Testament after you've read the Old and find out if it's quoted and how it's used in the New Testament. So that's how you do it in the Old Testament. How do you do it in the New Testament? Let me give you this quickly. In the New Testament, it's easier to see Christ. Do you agree? Right? Because Jesus has come and said, I am the Christ. So here's a couple ways. First of all, is Christ being exalted through the gospel, the good news of who he is and what he's done, what he is doing, and what he's yet to do? That's what the New Testament is really all about. What has Jesus come and has done in his earthly ministry? What is he doing in his heavenly ministry? And what has he yet promised to do in his second coming? And really you can, well, I won't even go there. Okay, so here's three other, four other ways. Is Christ being exalted through a backward look? For instance, Pastor Bruce starting a series on Matthew. And when you read through the Gospel of Matthew, repeatedly it says Jesus did this to fulfill what was written in the Old Testament. So Christ is being exalted with a backward look. He's fulfilling the Old Testament. Sometimes he's exalted through an upward look. Christ is seated at the right hand and his ministry in heaven right now is exalted. For instance, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. So when you're reading that, you're like, whoa, there's a ministry of Christ, not just in the Gospels, but right now from heaven. It's an upward exaltation. Sometimes it's an inward look. If you read the epistles of Paul, his favorite phrase is in Christ. We are in Christ. In fact, I looked at his 13 letters, and he uses the phrase in Christ 86 times. 13 times in Romans alone, 13 times in 1 Corinthians, 13 times in Ephesians. In fact, out of all of his 13 letters, he managed to never mention it in only two, 2 Thessalonians and Titus. There's an inward look of union with Christ. And then there's that forward look where the New Testament points us to the second coming and the coming kingdom of Christ. All right. So, approach your Bible theologically. It's about God, not me. Approach your Bible Christologically and realize that Christ is exalted in all 66 books. And then finally, approach your Bible spiritually. I could have said pneumatologically, but I can't pronounce it, so I said spiritually. Read in a spirit-led way. Read in a spirit-led way. There's a category of theology called pneumatology. Don't be scared. Two Greek words, pneuma and logos. It's a word about the spirit. The classic passage about the spirit in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2. We won't read that, but I just out of that passage, I mean, it's, 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 it's my go-to passage when you think about how important is the Spirit to the Bible. There's four truths in that passage, and they are simply this. 
The Spirit's inspiration. The Spirit's inspiration. Listen, the Spirit of God had to reveal to Christ's apostles and prophets the spiritual realities that human reason cannot come up with, much less understand. In that passage it says, Things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not even entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Listen, God has things to tell us that are so spiritual, so divine, so wonderful, we would never even come up with them on our, our biggest day of daydreaming, is the point. We need the Spirit to reveal God's words, and He has done so through the apostles in the Bible. Spirit's inspiration. Number two, the Spirit's indwelling. The Spirit's indwelling. If the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you, you will never understand the words of God. So the Spirit wrote the words. And they're words that human reasoning could never come up with. Therefore, if you approach the Bible with only your human reasoning, you won't understand it. You've got to have the Spirit of God in you. You need to be a Christian. Now, God will help an unbeliever, but He will help the unbeliever to see Himself as holy, them as unholy, Jesus is the rescuer and savior and the spirit who must indwell them to save them and explain the Bible to them. So you got spirit indwelling. Number three, in this passage, you have the spirit's illumination. Illumination. What's that mean? It means simply this, that even if you're born again and the spirit's in you, you need the spirit's help every time you open the Bible. You need the spirit's help. You need the Spirit, as Paul says, to enlighten the eyes of your heart so that you can understand the words on the page. So here's what I say to you. If you have struggled with reading the Bible and have given up, could it be that you have never been born again? And that's a good thing to know because God is eager to save you today. So maybe the reason the Word of God is boring, difficult to understand, is not so much your approach, it's that the Spirit isn't indwelling you and illuminating you. You say, well, Chris, you know, if that's the case, can I be saved? Yeah, you can be saved today. Just ask Jesus to save you. Turn from your sins, turn from your self-trust, and put your trust in Him and ask that His Spirit would come in and give you a new heart and ability to understand the Word of God and, the, and give you the mind of Christ, which is what this passage talks about. But maybe you're saying, no, Chris, I know I'm born again. I know the Spirit dwells me. Well, then maybe you're not asking for His help. Father, in the name of Jesus, may Your Spirit help me understand what I'm about to read. Real simple. This isn't... This isn't, you know, rocket science. Fourth, the Spirit's influence. The Spirit's influence. I just throw this in. It's not in the second, it's not in the first Corinthians passage, but it's in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. And it's simply this. Let's be honest. Sometimes we're reading the Bible 
And we're in habitual sin while we're trying to read it. That's not going to go well. Our hearts are hard. We know we should confess. We know we should repent. We know our salvation is secure in Christ, but we're in habitual rebellion. And then we go to the Bible and we're like, why does God seem so distant? And it's because we haven't yielded our life to the control of the Spirit. And when you, apply, when you compare Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 together, you find this principle. That until the Spirit controls me, the Word won't abide in me. Until the Spirit controls me, the Word won't abide in me. So yield your life today. If you've got secret sin, understand this. It's not going to stay secret long. If you've got habitual sin, it, you're only going to get... If you continue today into that same pattern, tomorrow you will be in greater bondage and it will be harder to repent. So let the Spirit liberate you. And approach your Bible to behold the glorious grace of God the Father... God the Son, and God the Spirit. I hope this transforms your approach. I really do. Um, I know it's helping me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you uh, that you reveal yourself to us. We thank you that in your holiness you have more than enough grace to cover any sin. And you have all power and authority to break sinful habits in our lives. Lord, you are our rescuer, our redeemer. And we want to behold you in the pages of the scripture. Forgive us, Lord, for turning your wonderful Bible into a yearbook about us. Forgive us for approaching it in a self-help way where we only come and read it when we have problems. Lord, help us to fall in love with you again and see you your glory, your grace, and yes, your coming judgment on every page of Scripture as we taste and treasure the glory of you, the triune God. It's in the name of the Father, through His Son, and by His Spirit that we say, Amen. Let it be. Let it be. All right, approach your Bible this week.